Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, everybody. Just a quick heads up. This episode, which is really good, uh, was recorded on uh, Wednesday morning. So if you recall, Wednesday morning, we had all woken up and learned that we had you know, taken Georgia, taken the U.S. Senate. So this episode was recorded before the insurrection attempt, the riot that happened at the United States Capitol, which is why we, we on, on Wednesday night, recorded an emergency pod about that. Because this episode you're about to listen to was frankly very joyous. And uh, we just felt tonally it didn't really make any sense to air this at the usual time. So we went ahead and we created an emergency pod on Wednesday night. We, we put that out. Um, you may have already listened to it. If not, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. I think it's a really good episode that you'll find valuable. Um, but either way, we waited to put this out you know, until Friday morning because it just seemed more appropriate. It's a great episode. And if nothing else, you should listen to it because you deserve to go back in time and feel the way you felt on Wednesday morning before any of this terrible stuff happened uh, on Wednesday afternoon. So with that said, please enjoy the episode. Georgia, sweet Georgia. I thought I'd start by singing poorly. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. It's very exciting, Ravi, because we always talk about this as like a popular majority, but now it's a fucking legislative majority. So, you know, if we want to keep it, we got to persuade some people. But how's your morning going? <laughs> My morning is great, and it's it's even better than folks would think because we have uh, on the podcast today one of my favorite human beings on the planet. Um, you know, one of the occupational hazards of working in politics is that you spend a lot of time with uh, a lot of phony politicians. But today I get to spend time with two of the most authentic, amazing political leaders I've ever come across. Oh, that was so nice. You ended up including, you said yeah, there you two. Go. <laughs> there you go. No, it's true. Uh, two people I met on the same day uh, in December 2016 uh, in Nashville, Tennessee at the first Arena Summit. Obviously, listeners know I met Jason Kander there, fresh off of his uh, amazing campaign down in Missouri. But I also met uh, Mayor Michael Tubbs, who's fresh off of his uh, successful campaign to become the 79th mayor of Stockton, California. Um, and he just finished serving out his term. Uh, and he was previously the youngest member, I think, of the Stockton City Council. And he was also the youngest mayor in Stockton and has gotten support from everybody from President Obama to Oprah Winfrey uh, and has piloted and implemented a ton of important policies, some of which we'll talk about. But one thing that is not, he doesn't get a lot of credit for, but that I've followed closely is that he is a mayor who thinks about kids first and foremost and is super bold about uh, advocating for what's in the best interest of kids, even when it's um, even when he faces heat for it. That is admirable. It's unique in politics. Mayor Tubbs, you're an inspiration. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, wow. What a great way to... I feel like I'm Ralph Warnick or somebody. <laughs> Thank you for the, the kind words. Rob is definitely one of my favorite people. And Jason, been a fan of yours for a while. So happy to have this conversation. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Well, Jason, as you alluded to, this is a special day. Uh, we we obviously have spent the past few months trying to walk our listeners through the ups and downs of this crazy uh, election system that we have. And and one thing that we said after the election or during the election result tabulation period in November was that we still have a chance to, we're going to win the presidency, we're going to hold the House, and we may win back the Senate. And we got to keep our eyes on that because that's still a possibility. Uh, and now we know this morning, we're recording this Wednesday morning, we know that that possibility has been realized. So as we look back on the Trump era, 
We have now won back the White House. We've captured the House and held it. And now we have control of the U.S. Senate. Jason, how do you feel about that? Man, all my walking today is dance walking. I'm just so <laughs> excited. And honestly, yesterday, like, I was kind of, you know, look, I didn't, I didn't think we were going to win both of these. Um, I didn't know. I had no idea. I had no reason not to think that other than just, you know, I'm a Democrat and usually stuff doesn't work out that well. And so I was kind of preparing people for the idea yesterday, like on social media. I was just like, hey, look, we're still going to get a lot of good things done. We just won't get as many good things done if we don't win these. But, you know, hopefully we win. The and then like last night. I was texting with Stacy. She said, I'm feeling something akin to hope, which I thought was a great way to put it. And I was like, we're going to win this. I, and, and ever since, I'm just sort of like, man, I'm just floating around. And uh, I've been thinking about all the stuff we can do now. So, you know, uh, Michael, what about you? Yeah, I, I think I was cautiously um, optimistic, or as you mentioned, Stacy, as she said, uh, just determined. So I was just watching and waiting, and I knew that folks would show up. That wasn't my concern, but I also knew that voter suppression is real and that that voter suppression had been akin to the election system in Georgia for a very long time. So I was worried about whether enough people would show up in a superhuman way in many respects to counteract all the forces trying to stop them from voting. And I'm so incredibly proud, particularly of, as we've been seeing on Twitter today, the, the Black women organizers and, and, and the Black women who, again, despite not being ever treated, <laughs> despite having no votes in the Senate, for example, besides the vote of the vice president, who's not a senator anymore, um, despite sort of on the same day of, of this election, the 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 the, acquit, the the acquittal of the officers who shot Jacob, like there was just so much stuff, and despite all that, they showed up, and then black men, Latinos, etc., also also showed up in a way. That really gives me hope, and I think it, I'm, I'm, my, my hope is cautioned and tempered by like political realities, and that if we don't hold ourselves accountable as people who have spent the last four years, it's easy to be in opposition. It's easy to say this is bad. It's easy to say this is this person is terrible. And it's harder to be the people with control. It's harder to actually be in the position to govern. And my only fear is that we waste this opportunity when you have a, a global catastrophic pandemic we have an economy in shatters, and you have the ability, actually, to mandate a huge electoral college win from the president to actually do something. If we don't do something in this moment, then I really question whether we actually can, right? And, and that's sort of where I am this morning. But more hopeful than anything and more appreciative and, and proud. Yeah, and we're going to get to in a second what our hopes are for this uh, very, very narrow uh, U.S. Senate uh, majority. Uh, but just to, to piggyback on what you both said you know, there are so many important parts of this victory that we have to carry with us moving forward. And I, I think I want to start where you picked up, where you picked up, uh, Michael, in the, in the question of organizing long term in communities of color, uh, with the organizing largely led by communities of color uh, and long term. So, like weathering some losses over time and being patient enough to see it through, uh, I think is tremendous. And the fact that that can coexist with the strategy to persuade voters in the suburbs and that the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. And by the way, that suburbs are not, uh, they're not homogenous either. And, you know, and Atlanta has a, a suburban population that's about as diverse and, and, and different than the suburbs of the days of Reagan than we could, than we could ever imagine. Uh, and so I think that's incredible. I think the rejection of corruption is important here that both Loeffler and Purdue were uh, transparently corrupt uh, and that Purdue was ducking accountability in every possible way and ducking the debates, et cetera, and that he didn't get away with that, I think was really important. And I think most importantly, the rule of law was on the ballot here, the, the brazen attacks by the president on election officials in Georgia, even of his own party, the fact that he did not get away with that. And that importantly, the narrative now is, and Jason, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, like the narrative is very clear right now, which is that this is losing politics for the Republicans and uh, we're going to talk in a second about what we want out of the Senate. But I think now we need to take that narrative and pass some legislation to shore up our election system and people's right to vote and their representation, because I think that we need to continue that story. Well, like they really wanted to frame this election as uh, one of, you know, socialism. And I know we're going to get into that whole argument in a few minutes. But I mean, if if you think 
that the argument that the the choice that Georgia voters had was between socialism and whatever the hell they're calling the other side. Okay, well, it looks like people decided rather than continue to litigate Trump bullshit, they'd rather have two thousand dollars. So if that's if that's what the question was on the ballot, well, then I guess this thing you're calling socialism won. People in Georgia chose that, and your point is a good one that activating communities of color, not even activating, because that's not true, because they were active, including them in the process, while at the same time persuading people in the suburbs, you're right, they're not mutually exclusive. It just goes back to my favorite Stacy quote, which is, I'm not trying to turn Catholics into Baptists, I'm just trying to get Baptists to church. And and I just think it worked, and it's it's really cool. Yeah, uh, you know, if you would have, if you, if we would have told you that we pick up these two Senate seats before everything, before the, the you know, the November election, et cetera, uh, you know, I think people really need to stop and just appreciate this. And Democrats are so bad at appreciating victories; they're like Buffalo Bills fans. Uh, they just, they're always worried about whatever lurks around the corner, whatever sadness and disappointment lurks around the corner. It's just everybody should just stop and appreciate how awesome it is that we've turn the page on this four years of Trump in a pretty dramatic way. When people act like this is a super backward country because Trump was the president, just remember that the state of Georgia just elected a liberal Jewish documentarian and a liberal black preacher to the United States Senate. So how backward really of a direction can we be heading in in total? Tubbs, let's start with you. Uh, what do we want out of this Senate? Like, what do we what do we think is possible? Uh, and I don't want to negotiate with ourselves, but we we've all worked in politics. We know that we have to uh, live in the world of the achievable. Uh, what is achievable in the short term here in the next two years, and what's at the top of your list? At, at the bare minimum, just some of the campaign promises from the Biden Harris administration. Um, so in, in housing, they talked about the need for real rental relief, and they also talk about making housing a right making housing a right in the United States. That absolutely has to be on the agenda. It's something that's already on paper, that's been negotiated. That's, this is something that we think is possible. I think the $2 trillion climate change plan that, that the Biden-Harris um, campaign put forward has to be passed in the first 100 days. Again, it's something that's been negotiated. It's something that's been said that we can do this and we will, and that would create this new green deal in cities and create transition to clean energy, um, et cetera. I, I think COVID relief has to be part of the first 100 days, and it has to include reoccurring checks, not just check, not one-time checks. We know those one-time checks help that month. But we also know that people have been facing economic pain for the duration of this pandemic. But for a lot of majority, for 50% of Americans, they were $500 away before COVID-19. And I don't see how they're better off with um, COVID-19. So some sort of reoccurring cash payment. And I also think that's possible because VP-elect Harris has a bill in the Senate. She co-sponsored with Senator Sanders and Senator Markey that talks about $2,000 a month every month for the duration of the pandemic. And then there has to be um, some a real focus on justice as well um, with this majority, that there has to be real criminal justice reform. There has to be real investment in alternatives to incarceration, alternatives to policing, and different models of crisis response as first responders. There has to be some really hard and tough conversations around um, sort of ending qualified immunity, um, ending binding arbitration, and things that we know are necessary to ensure that when a bad cop does something bad, there's an actual punishment. Just like when a bad person does something bad, there's a whole system of, of, of checks and balances and law and order that makes it so. Um, so so I think if we do those things, and and that will be just a huge leap. And also, forgive me, immigration reform. We have to do something with this majority while we have it to, to, to ensure that the DREAM Act becomes reality. We ask for pathways to citizenship. And I also think that even beyond the realm of the possible, we also have to have a conversation about some structural reforms. I am of the opinion that we should end the filibuster. I'm of the opinion that we should expand the number of Supreme Court um, seats. I know that's controversial. I know um, President-elect may not be there, but I think for the, the millions of people who voted for him, I think the Democratic majority in the House and the Senate may need to push and may, may need to prod. And I think if we do all of those things, which to me seems very doable, particularly because 90% of them are already on paper and already have been committed by those in power that they can do it, we'll be able to actually keep a majority in 2022 because we'll have something to show for, 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 for having control of the Congress and, 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 the, and the presidency. Man, tremendous list. And, and I couldn't agree more on the filibuster. 
And I think that the best argument for the fact that we that we are getting rid of the filibuster, we're going to have to, is the Voting Rights Act. You, you know, I mean, you're not going to get it otherwise. And then once you have that, you can do all the other things you mentioned. You can you can do uh, gun safety. You can I, I have my little list here. You can fully fund the VA. You hit most of them, Michael. Um, you could get rid of private prisons. You can get real campaign reform. You can get D.C. statehood, all that stuff. But the only way that happens is uh, is if you get rid of the filibuster. The the only way all that happens, and you're you're absolutely right. This idea that we've traditionally had that if we proceed cautiously and if we if we try and bring as many people from the other side as possible into this, then we can have a chance to hold on to the majority in two years. Well, yeah, in a in an ideal world where everybody has the same sensibility as, frankly, the Democrats and some, I don't know, maybe 20% of the Republican delegation. In that world, yes, that's true. But we don't live in that world. We live in the world where you deliver. And if you deliver, you get more time to continue to deliver. That's what's got to happen. Yeah, huge underline on the delivering, right? And, you know, you have two politicians here who understand this intimately. And, you know, this has been a big topic of this uh, podcast, which is Democrats get in trouble when we don't deliver. We're seeing it again in New York where we can't, we have vaccinations that are um, going to expire uh, because we can't get them out in an organized fashion. Um, that is an indictment of our ability to deliver in, in government. And we need more competent, um, results oriented government. And I think I 100% agree on the filibuster. Like everything um, Michael named. Like most of it, we need to end the filibuster in order to pass that, if not all of it. And my sense is that what's going to have to happen here is like there are certain people, you know, Manchin, uh, Kelly, et cetera, that I think what is going to get them off the sidelines on the filibuster, if anything, uh, is that they there's something they really care about that gets blocked. I think that's what does it. And I think it's probably going to start with COVID relief. So I think if Biden is smart... He pushes uh, aggressive COVID relief that includes state and local government um, assistance, uh, and you know we can we can put high speed rail in w- West Virginia, whatever we need. Uh, Man, Wheeling yeah. is going to look like Coruscant <laughs> by the time we're done, and that's fine. Wheeling could use it. I'm good. Yeah, whatever we need, we could pave the streets with gold. Uh, we need to put stuff out there uh, that it works for all Americans, and in particular in in some of the states that. Uh, that are represented by people who are on the fence about the filibuster have it either passed, which is great, or you know it's kind of a game of chicken with the the Senate Republicans. If they filibuster it, then that becomes an opening for us with those senators to say, let's get rid of it, and then let's do the structural reform, then let's uh, push through the big policy wins. Uh, you know, and I think if we go in that order, we may succeed. You know, if we if we go in that order. Well, and two things about this. One, I think it's important anytime, because we're about, I promise you, everybody who's listening to this, I promise you, in the next 30 days, you're going to end up in an argument with your conservative brother-in-law that you never thought you were going to have, which is going to be about, you know, Senate procedure and the filibuster. And, and an important thing to remember is we ain't talking about the filibuster from Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Nobody has to stand up and talk or do anything to filibuster anymore. It, the filibuster is just you have to have 60 votes in order to do anything. It doesn't require anybody to get up and make their case. It doesn't require anybody to stand for a long time without going to the bathroom. So let's remind everybody of that, that this is... This this has been fully corrupted. And Jason, just to add one piece to that, you know, your conservative brother-in-law might, if he's very well uh, researched on this, could be like, well, the filibuster is a check against simple majorities, right? Well, what you could say to your conservative brother-in-law is that the 50 Democratic senators represent 40 million more Americans already than the 50 Republican senators. So we already have that check in place by yeah. the what design of the Senate in the first place. That's a great point. And, and then the other thing I was going to mention is, it's important for us to understand why it is that Democrats are required to deliver more often when they're in power than Republicans. It's not just like some sort of basic unfairness. It's the fact that we're the party that argues that government can do things and the other party argues that government can't. So when Republicans are in charge and government fails, they're like, yeah, you shouldn't ask government to do this. We told you that it wouldn't work. And when Democrats are in charge and government fails, people are like, why didn't it work? You said it would work. And that's not an unfair standard people hold us to. I'm I'm hopeful that what's going to happen is uh, we get some momentum for, you know, let's get people the $2,000 checks. 
so I completely agree with you, Michael. And I hadn't even really thought about the expansive idea of like, we don't got to do this once because it makes, we've been talking about this in the podcast. It makes so much sense if we can continue to give federal aid like this and relief through the rest of this pandemic, we can, we can crush this virus by actually having realistic, uh, you know, stay at home stuff happen and, and realistic approaches to the virus. I mean, talk about that from your perspective as, as a local leader. Yeah, well, what's interesting, and we did like the guaranteed income pilot in Stockton before the pandemic, but, and I was just really just interested in the idea, but I became an evangelist and a true believer during the pandemic because so many recipients told me in March before we could set up testing. And they said, Meritub, I just want to thank you because I was coughing. I felt a little sick. I'm not able to get a COVID test, but because of $500, I didn't go to my retail job and I stayed home for two weeks. And I would not have done that without this $500 because it's about the certainty of eating versus uncertainty of whether I have a virus or not. That's new and no one knows about. And that's when I realized that this is about kind of public health. This is about economic resilience. This is about disaster planning. Like literally people were saying, I am going to stay home with my fever, not because I have COVID, but because I have money. So if I work and if I don't work because I don't have paid time off or I don't have two weeks paid time off, I'm still able to pay my bills, which don't pause this, no matter what's happening in the world. And that for me was an aha moment. Like this is really about keeping us healthy. And I think not to justify, um, but I think some of the behavior we see around some folks, not all folks, but some folks who are sort of resisting kind of public health guidance around staying at home and, and capacity limits and closing things indoors, et cetera, or that they have to eat, that they have to live. And in the absence of the federal government making up for what is necessary to pay for not luxuries, but the necessities of what it means to be human, folks will continue to behave in rational ways that make this make our fight against the virus that much more difficult. And, and, and then even hearing from my small business owners, I'm hearing just from folks in the community about how this has been really tough. Like I'm thinking about people who are deemed essential, who now have to pay for more childcare and it's hard to find childcare providers during this time. I'm thinking about sort of folks whose kids have come home from college or whose kids are at home on Zoom all day and how that increases people's utility bills. That increases the amount they have to pay for food. No one's paycheck has decreased. In fact, more people are employed, more people are um, are, are are waiting for months to get on unemployment benefits that they've paid into. It, it's a complete mess. And I think something like this, reoccurring pandemic checks, makes a lot of sense. And to your point, Jason, will actually allow us to beat this virus. It will actually allow us to vaccinate everyone. It will actually allow us to shelter in place. It will actually allow us um, to ensure our children aren't unduly harmed by what's been a really, I'm sure, traumatic year for young people who are at home in front of computers all day. And a lot of their homes don't have home office spaces. Oftentimes they have three or four siblings all on Zoom on the same time. Oftentimes the homes don't have great internet. Um, so let, let me get off my soapbox, but absolutely. I just think it, it's, 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 it's about like pandemic response, but it's also about building like economic resilience because another pandemic is coming, whether it's a flood, whether it's an earthquake, whether it's um, by shipping a bunch of jobs overseas. And, and I think uh, an income floor just makes sense in terms of smart contingency planning. Well, also, I mean, wouldn't it stimulate the economy in a moment when we really need it? <laughs> yeah, because people are going to spend it. That's the thing. Not, like the folks aren't going to save this money. They're going to spend it. They can't. I mean, if you're in the position where you need this, like you're not in a position to save them. That's the whole concept of demand side economics, right? I mean, it's don't give money to people who can afford to save it. Give money to the people who need to spend it because they have stuff that they need or bills to pay. Yeah. And, you know, and we're going to come back to this a little bit later in the podcast. And so maybe um, I'll just put a, a, a brief pause in this by just adding that the government already believes in um, that kind of stimulus and does it for corporations through the Fed uh, and through the discount window and quantitative easing, where like basically people don't pay attention to this because average Americans aren't directly affected by it. But one of the reasons why the stock market is out of control uh, in its growth uh, and completely asymmetrical to the experiences of daily Americans is because corporations can borrow basically unlimited money to get through this. And that is a government policy. Uh, and that is a policy that, you know, in, in many ways has had bipartisan consensus, but Americans can't do that. Um, and, you know, the, the very little relief that they had was a, a short term, uh, completely imperfect attempt 
uh, a few months ago that, you know, we have to fight tooth and nail to extend. And so I think people are understandably frustrated. Those small business owners, no matter what their politics are, are have a right to be upset at government. And I think what we as Democrats need to do is like hear them, channel that, be responsible about the public health and not dismiss their concerns because they're real. Everybody wants to keep their home and family safe, whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency. Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get an arsenal of cameras and sensors; you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night, ready to send police, fire, or EMTs when you need them most, straight to your door. And it really is really easy to set up. Like we've used it really also don't have to think about it. So the maintenance is easy. The equipment's really quality. So I really do highly recommend it. Plus with Simply Safe, there's no long-term contract, no hidden fees or installation costs. Right now, our listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com slash majority54. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com slash majority54 for your free security camera today. That's Simply Safe. Now, Simply Safe is S I M P L I S A F E dot com slash majority 54. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about another podcast you're going to love Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle brings you the daily realities of life inside prison shared by those living it and the stories from the outside post incarceration. They're just wrapping up their sixth season, which covers topics like COVID-19 in the San Quentin prison, parents in prison, stories of life in the vehicles that drive people to and between prisons. You can listen and subscribe at EarHustleSQ.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Michael, we have a, uh, a segment we call Quarantine Corner. This is where we take a break from the political discussions and, and talk about something going on in our lives outside of politics. Jason, what's going on in your world? Uh, I have taken my annoying uh, nutrition and fitness uh, sort of hobby, the only hobby that I really have, to the next level of being really annoying uh, and sort of biohacking. And I have, for the last uh, about 16 days, been wearing a continuous glucose monitor, which is something that, you know, in the past has been uh, just exclusively for folks with diabetes um, for good reason. Uh, but there's a company um, that is in beta that a friend of mine uh, is involved with and sent me, uh, you got me hooked up with it. So Diana and I have been part of the beta test. So like we have this app on our phone where we can see exactly how our body and our blood sugar responds to all sorts of different foods. And I've learned all these fascinating things about like what happens when I have a banana versus what happens when I have a banana and some almonds. I mean, you know, maybe not the most exciting stuff to other folks, but I've been geeking out about this and it's actually been <laughs> really exciting. Is there any food that you that you tried that you were surprised that it had a glucose response? No, because but it's been more like there's stuff that I was surprised at how extreme the response was. Like I pretty much I I've tried apples now in the last uh, couple of weeks with every combination of other things I can't and like I just I don't think I'm going to eat apples very often, which is too bad. Apples is are Is it because the insulin so, response is so aggressive from the apples? Yeah, it just spikes like huge, whereas really? like bananas are kind of okay. And Anyway. Um, I have a grape addiction, and I'm worried that that's going to test grapes for me this week. Uh, test grapes. Oh, grapes. They- I haven't tested grapes yet. You'll be excited to know Magic Spoon cereal, boom, no problem at all. Oh, man, good for those people. Does it depend yeah. on your like body composition, or is it pretty standard for all people? Uh, no, it cha- that's the thing. It's like everybody responds differently to different foods, which is why you go ahead and wear the monitor. Because like you can read articles about it and be like, oh, you know, theoretically this thing responds this way, but like different stuff is different for everybody. So I've talked about this too long now. <laughs> Magic Spoon, not a sponsor, by the way. I should just say, like, we're, it's a free shout out. All right. Well, I'll go really fast before I get to Michael. Uh, I uh, read a book called Ready Player One. Uh, which was made into a movie, but I read the book before I watched the movie. So I read the book last week and then I rewarded myself by watching the movie. And here's my recommendation to the audience. This book is incredible. It is only worth reading if you haven't watched the movie because the movie ruins it. Um, the movie is not very good. I would say it's the, the, the movie's okay. I've only seen the movie and I loved the movie oh, and then I was you'd planning to read the book. Yeah, it's just the book is A plus, especially if you have knowledge of or memories of the 80s or an early 90s in any way. 
it is it is a masterpiece in my opinion it's really really fun there is a second one coming out right there is a well they're they may be making it into a movie but the second book is already out i haven't read it yet oh so that's so that's why i was planning to go and read ready player one because my understanding is ready player two he's written it oh yeah yeah that's there it's 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 out i think or at least i saw it on amazon it could have been just like an early release thing but highly recommend it michael what's going on in your world yeah, I've been reading my my wife has a book coming out in February called The Three Mothers about oh, cool. Dr. King's mom, James Baldwin's mom, and Malcolm X's mom, and she wrote it while pregnant and she would just come in and like give me the say a thing and go back to write, but now it's the first time I get to actually read. And like I knew my wife was smart, but <laughs> she's like hella smart. <laughs> I was like this is That's awesome. So wait, when does that come out? February 2nd. That's great. And you 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 give it a positive review. Yeah, from what I've read so far, um, but a lot of people have actually like real people yeah, sure. have like given like real experts have given like really good comments. So it's just great to have the time to actually sit down and spend some time and actually read and, and really reflect on the importance of like motherhood and mothers and 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 it's yeah. It's called the Three Mothers. Yeah, the Three Mothers. And I'm sure it's pre-order available now. Yeah, yeah. And Michael, your mother was as was mine, um, but your mother was super important in your life, right? Yeah, it's so funny because she talks about James Baldwin's mom, Malcolm X's mom, and Dr. King's mom. And for me, it was my mom, but it was also my aunt, who was like my mom, and my grandmother, who's like my mom. And I always used to tell people, I have three moms. So it's a really <laughs> cool sort of, sort, sort of parallel. But I think particularly in, in, in this moment with Kamala Harris being elected vice president, and we were talking about Stacey Abrams and talking about the Black women organizer, she talks about like Dr. King's mom, who was doing very similar work in Atlanta, hundred years ago, right? <laughs> and, and Malcolm, and it's just so interesting how even the conversations we're having today are rooted in some of the work of unsung heroes, usually mothers, um, that we don't know that much about. Because I, I was hearing her doing a podcast the other day, and I never heard her answer it like this. They said, well, why'd you write the book? And she said, well, we spend so much time like celebrating these men. We even commemorate their birthdays as holidays. And I was just very curious as to why did we even stop to think about like, hey, who got them here? Like, at the yeah. very least, who birthed them? Like, why are we not curious about who these people are while celebrating the fruits of their labor? And I was like, that's so true. Like, no one, I've, I've never stopped to ask, like, what was Dr. King's mom like? <laughs> Even yeah. though, like, we wouldn't have the day without her. Anyway, that, that's what I've been doing. So I'll, hopefully my goal is to be done before it's out. So I have three more weeks. Well, I, I just want to make sure, and for the record, since my mom listens to this show, say that my mom also very important. Uh, <laughs> Good clarification. Uh, and I could have gotten you in big trouble there. In This Week in Misinformation, we want to dive deep into the question of socialism. The the tag of socialism on Democrats has been uh, one that we've been grappling with. And, and in some cases, GOP has been successful. In some cases, they haven't. Uh, and so we have a voicemail from uh, Ed Garish uh, from South Dakota, longtime listener, uh, Cleveland Browns fan. So uh, congratulations to him. Uh, hopefully they'll be able to field a healthy team this weekend that, given all the, the COVID problems that they've been having. But um, I couldn't resist the dig. But good luck this weekend. Um, and uh, let's listen to that voicemail, Grace. Hey, guys, this is Ed. I have a quick question about Republicans running on socialism. As far as I can tell, there are maybe like 10 Democratic socialists in the House and the Senate, and the more conservative Joe Manchin uh, would have more power in his left pinky than all of them combined if, after Georgia, we end up having a 50-50 Senate. Uh, meanwhile, uh, this year, 40 percent of all farm income was a big check from the government, and uh, this is a big increase caused by Trump's trade war. So as far as I can tell, that's socialism, or at least what Republicans are telling me uh, is socialism. And yet the socialism message seemed to work uh, in South Florida, among other places, which turned out really big for Trump and for Republicans. So what's the deal? Uh, why is this message working when Republicans are also seem to be supporting socialism, at least when it helps uh, their voters? Thanks a lot. Love the podcast. Bye. Well, I think Ed asks a great question, and I think it, it brings up the point that we have to take the heat out of the term doesn't mean you don't even have to be for socialism to understand that for Democrats to keep winning elections, you got to make that term a lot less powerful as a negative. And that's why you do have to make points like he made, like 40% of farm income coming from the government in the last year. Points like, hey, you know, public schools, that's socialism. Or when people talk about socialism in terms of healthcare, 
just making the point that, you know, the government gets really involved in industries when without the government there, you have a market failure. You have no incentive to actually treat people decently, which is clearly what we've seen in healthcare, right? Like it's a volume business instead of a, you know, quality care business. That's how you make money in the thing. So I do think it's important to take the heat out of the term. Absolutely. And I think the GOP has done a evilly great job of making words that sound innocuous, but they actually signal some sort of deeper meaning to, to other people. Because I think in the example um, that, that the caller mentioned, this, this notion of socialism only seems to be applied to things that help other people that aren't white. Like anything that seemed to be like helping yeah. people of color yeah. or black that people, that's socialist and that becomes bad. And they really have done a really great job at set dog whistling, right? Their whole political communication is all a bunch of, of dog whistles and that we all know what they mean subconsciously. So I think to your point, Jason, we have to do a better job of of making these terms less scary, but also we have to do a better job of leaning in and, and kind of using our own language and, and not socialism, but we want the government to work for everyone. We want everyone to benefit. We want everyone to have um, access to the things that I think we have to play with language as well and really lean in because it's the, the tone, the terms are so loaded because we haven't done a good enough job as a country as Democrats of really combating racist tropes head on and say like, no, this is why this word sounds scary. And that's a, 10, 20, 30, 40 year project, but I think it's one that's necessary because anytime we'll try to do anything, they'll just say socialism, right? And I think that we, they've been doing this since the FDR days and we still haven't had an effective counter narrative in terms of like, well, no, it, it, it's not. And if it was, what's scary about public schools and fire stations and public libraries, like that, that's, that's socialist as well. Yeah, there's a, there's a big difference between being overly aggressive, which is, you know, uh, feeling you have to combat every single thing and saying to somebody, hey, but what about farmers, right? And being unapologetic. Those are two really different things, right? And yeah, if you're constantly trying to make somebody who doesn't want to hear it aware of the fact that, you know, they're speaking from a place of privilege, like if you're constantly berating them with that, that's probably not going to work. But if you're unapologetic in the fact that you do recognize your privilege or you do recognize that this is a dog whistle without being, uh, you know, frankly, just rude about it, that's very effective. And that's what I mean when I say you got to take the heat out of it. You can't be apologetic. You can't be like, well, no, 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 it's not socialism. You can say, you know, I could see where the, it has some tinges of what you could argue is sort of like socialism, but so do a lot of things we do and then run through that list. And then like yeah. everything we do is called socialist. It, it, like <laughs> you been from the Obama days, Robbie, like everything was socialist, even things like his health care plan. Was yeah, no, they called Obamacare socialist. Yeah, it was Romney's plan. It was like a heritage foundation plan or something. It was like a AEI or heritage or something. It came from. Uh, and there's a great book called Dark Money by Jane Mayer that goes through like the 40, 50 year effort to uh, make this a potent attack funded largely by corporate America and other wealthy Americans. But there's another dynamic that Ed uh, leads to here, which is that there is this constant focus on uh, the most left wing elements of the Democratic coalition. And they want Americans to think that the entire coalition or the average member of the coalition uh, in elected government represents those views. Now, I've said before that I think we need a big tent. We need to include people who describe themselves as socialists in our coalition because we need every freaking vote. So we need to respect those people, even if we if even if we have to bargain across the table so that not everybody gets what they want. Right. But but as Ed said, there are not a lot of straight up socialists in the way that they mean the term, the way that the Republicans mean the term in government. We elected Joe Biden. We elected Senator Kelly, you know, but somehow we're left explaining ourselves. And I, and I want to get out of this. But what's crazy to me is that the GOP is literally an extreme party. Like yes, literally they yeah. have fascists in their, in their governing ranks. Like, like they, they literally, the, the mainstream GOP position on a lot of things is actually pretty extreme right and there's not and yet right. they don't have to respond or, or counter or be on the defensive for anything and, and i'm sure you guys have better ideas than i have but that always just frustrates me because i mean we're talking about someone who wants to give everyone free college and we have to talk about people who don't want to count votes like that, that, that those are just so 
diametrically opposed in terms of extremes. And I just feel like, the, and I feel like we have to do a better job of really explaining and making our case. Like, no, there's a party that actually has anti-democracy members who are coordinating with foreign governments who are dismantling the social safety net, who don't want you to have a retirement. Like, that's extreme. To Michael's point about the Republicans being an extreme party, Michael, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I think you mean the elected, you know, representatives of that party, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... Absolutely. I think because there was a comment how everyone in the Democratic coalition is not represented by some of the folks who are on the extreme. And I was like, well, and so yeah, I was talking about like the elected, the elected representatives of the Republican Party, many of whom I find to be incredibly extreme in their yeah. views around climate, reproductive choice, um, taxes. Um, and just on the democracy itself. Yeah, like you said, right. and this would, this would be the, so this, to sort of close the book on this conversation, we've been talking about socialism, um, which really is a debate about the role of government. Uh, and I think there there are few people in American political life who've uh, started a more interesting, more important debate about the role of government than uh, Michael Tubbs. So, uh, Michael, you uh, alluded to this earlier, but you have piloted a universal basic income program uh, in Stockton. You mind just describing what that program is, where it stands right now, what you've learned so far? Yeah, absolutely. And the and the program really is. Rooted in ideas as old as this democracy. I mean, Thomas Paine was talking about this in the late 1700s. Um, Dr. King was talking about this before he was assassinated. Um, Richard Nixon was experimenting with guaranteed income experiments while president, with Donald Rumsfeld running the experiments. Um, Sarah Palin, while governor, although not universal basic income through the Alaskan Permanent Fund, became so popular because she increased the amount of money folks got not because they worked, but because they happened to live in Alaska and based off the resources in, in that state. So in that vein, 2019, we piloted a, a guaranteed income in Stockton where a representative sample of 125 residents were given $500 a month as an income floor. And understanding that $500 a month wasn't enough to replace work. Like people didn't say, oh, I got $500. Let me just stop working and stop doing anything. But it was enough to create an income floor for when life events, disruptions happen, that folks had the resilience needed to persist and were able to do things like bet on themselves, do things like leave abusive relationships, do things like contend with rent increases, do things like pay for dentures, do things like take time off their hourly job to interview for a better paying job without risking not being able to pay for their monthly bills. Their formal report will be out in March. And what we found is that people spend money the way you and I spend money. That, that the issue isn't that people are poor or people aren't economically insecure because they don't know how to manage money. In fact, I'm crazy enough to believe that money management, is, I, I think that it happens irregardless of income because the richest people I know have professional people manage their money for them because they don't think they know how to manage money super well. And the poorest people I know don't have people to manage money for them, and yet somehow find ways to rob Peter, pay Paul, check cash. Like they find crazy ways to make sure all the bills are paid despite income volatility. And what happened this summer, which I'm super proud of, is that in June, I created a group called Mayors for Guaranteed Income. So now we have 30 mayors across this country, uh, from cities like Pittsburgh to cities like Providence, Rhode Island, to cities like Madison, Wisconsin, St. Paul, Minnesota, um, cities like Mount Vernon, New York, et cetera, who, Columbia, South Carolina, um, who are all going to do guaranteed income pilots this year, similar to Compton, California, similar to Stockton. And the idea is to show that it's not necessarily a liberal California thing, particularly because Stockton's not the most liberal place in California by any stretch. And it's factly, in fact, more conservative than the majority of the state. But to show that this is an idea that, 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 is consistent with American values that, that will have a data set and examples behind it and will help kind of push a conversation forward. And, and I think for me, during COVID-19, it really came to a head because I was studying like FDR and New Deal stuff. And I, and I realized that so much of what he proposed was so big and so bold and so different, but it was met, it met the moment they were in, as we were in as a country. And in the same way, I think I've been frustrated with sort of pandemic response being basically unemployment insurance, which is a good thing, but also understand that unemployment insurance was created in 1935 as a solution to a 1935 problem. And it's now 2020. So I think we have to add into sort of our thinking of what 
government, what, what we owe to each other, what type of society we want to live in, um, what, what would the income floor mean for a lot of folks. And, and I'll close with saying what's fascinating for me is that the some of the places that I benefit the most are some of the places that are the most red. When you think of like Appalachia, when you think of sort of the the highest poverty rate cities, I mean, states in this country include Alabama, Mississippi, et cetera, and how an income floor for people there would mean a world of difference in terms of the, the vitality of their communities, in terms of the level of the, the, how their kids are able to achieve in school, et cetera. So sorry for the overlong um, monologue and PSA, but super mm-hmm. incredibly excited about that work and excited about having that debate and having a conversation about what does it cost to provide an income floor and why wouldn't we do it? Like, what are we missing by not doing it versus what do we lose by, by doing it? You know, I really appreciated uh, the PSA and something that you just said kind of sparked with me, which is not only are these areas that are very red and in many cases very rural, not only are they uh, places where people could benefit because poverty is poverty, but they are also places where those dollars in many cases could go a lot farther than they go in in a city, right? So they can potentially make that much greater of a difference in people's lives. Yeah, and, and and I think for me, that's why I'm so excited about having other cities do it. Like, what does that mean in South Carolina? Like, what does that mean in Tennessee? What does that mean in Mississippi? What does that mean in Georgia? Like, what, like what does that mean? And, 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 and does that change these cities to different countries with different governing and economic systems? Does it change all the things? Does it make people not work? Does it make people lazy? Or does it actually make people more productive? Because it gives them agency to make decisions. It gives them ownership of their time. So question, I I think I have this right. When you did uh, the pilot in Stockton, you used, the business community got on board, right, to fund it. Is that the model in other cities as well? So every city is doing differently, but we've seen, particularly with CARES Act funding, that some cities like St. Paul, Minnesota, for example, started with three months of cash assistance using CARES Act dollars. And then once those dollars run out in December, we'll use sort of the, the, the funding we were able to get from Jack Dorsey at Twitter to, to do continuing payments. So that we're mm-hmm. seeing, what's been fascinating is seeing how even how far the ball has moved from where we started, where it had to be all private funded. And people were still pissed. Um, so now mayors are saying, well, oh, we're using some of these CARES Act dollars. And then after the CARES Act dollars run out, we'll use some private dollars. Um, and even in, even I'm, I'm proud, even in Stockton, we were able to do sort of one-time direct cash payments to residents using CARES Act dollars. When when I launched the Guaranteed Income Program, it was like World War III. Like I was like <laughs> trying to succeed from the United States. Um, so it's interesting to also see, and then you guys know this better than most, how ideas may start one place but can end somewhere differently and, and, and things can change over time. I think Georgia really proves that. You just have to say focus, your eye on the ball. Come with Stacey Abrams was talking in 2011 that one day Georgia will go blue and I will be governor. Everyone thought she was crazy and she put in the work. She built coalitions. She tested ideas and now we're all singing her praises. We're all thankful to have a democracy thanks to Georgia um, and, and I think for me, that gives me a lot of hope for things like guaranteed income, for things like ending the filibuster, for things like a lot of things we discussed that it may not happen exactly when we want it, but with our eye on the ball of a consistent focus, it, it, it can happen. And, and today is a real example of that. Well, Michael, uh, we always end with a segment we call Grab an Oar, where we point people to action. And I just want to start by thanking everybody who is involved in the Georgia elections. I want to thank all of our listeners in Georgia for doing everything they could and everybody outside of it who pitched in as well. I'm going to add a, a quick action before kicking it to you two. Arena, the organization that I um, I run and how I met the two of you, uh, has been holding these events called Arena Academies. Uh, and these are uh, opportunities for people who are either involved in politics or who want to be involved in politics to learn how to run campaigns. And so we're holding our first Academy of 2021 um, from March 12th to 16th, and it's going to be completely online. You could pay for it if you have the means, or you can get a scholarship if you don't. Um, the early admission deadline is January 31st. Uh, and so go to arena.run uh, or check out at Arena Summit on Twitter. If you want to learn more about that, we'd love to see you there and, and help you get your start in politics. And Michael, we'd invite you if you if you have any cause or anything like that, do you want to point people to this is the moment? 
Yeah, it goes through Marriage for Guaranteed Income, marriageforagi.org. It encourages your marriage to join if they're not, or give your marriage a shout out if they are a part. And also go to the threemothersbook.com and make my wife very, make me a, a great husband for, for plugging my wife. So I'm a really good book. All right. A reminder to everybody um, about two things before we go. One, uh, we really want to get your feedback on uh, the podcast as we you know, go into this new year, editorial stuff that we can do better, which segments you like, you don't like, what you'd like to hear more of. Uh, you can, it's a short survey and we are asking you to please fill it out for us. You go to wondermedianetwork.com slash majority 54 wondermedianetwork.com slash majority 54. Please do that as a favor to us. Uh, also feel free to leave us a voicemail as usual. And we may use your voicemail on the show. It's 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. The show is at majority 54 on Twitter. And Michael is at Michael D. Tubbs on Twitter. Georgia, sweet Georgia. How's, how's the rest of it go? And then it's like uh, the whole day through. I cannot sing at all, but I feel like singing today. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. All right, that was fun. All right. We gave Grace a lot of work. Sorry, Grace. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.